Good afternoon. Welcome to Hooting Yard on the Air. My name is Frank Key. Many moons ago, um, I ended one of the shows with um, chapter one of a lengthy story, and I said, I'll be continuing that next week. But of course I didn't. I broke my promise to listeners, and uh, you haven't heard any more of it in months and months. So <clears throat> I'm going to devote this week's show and next week's, or most of next week's, to this single piece called The Immense Duck Pond Pamphlet. A is for Aminadab. Like Hitler, he took seven sugars in his tea. This had caused some embarrassment on his first day at the house. They had to send an urchin scurrying down to the cellars to fetch up a fresh tub of sugar. The urchin returned empty-handed, explaining that the sugar larder was heavily padlocked. Blodgett was furious. His face growing purple, he apologised to Aminadab, rummaged in the cupboard for a stout pickaxe and, commanding the urchin to dog his every footstep, he thundered down the stairs to the cellar. Shortly afterwards, Aminadab heard the noise of a wooden door being smashed to pieces with a metal pickaxe. By the time he was able to drop seven lumps of sugar into his cup, the tea was stewed and cold. Blodgett affected not to notice and busied himself with a new trap for flying insect beings. B is for Blodgett. Blodgett had been at the house since infancy. He was dyspeptic and cruel. Like Madame Rousseau, he had never learned to tell the time and rarely knew what day of the week it was. This was surprising for a man in his position, charged as he was with running the lower floors of the house. His bailiwick included the frightening rooms on the first floor, the whole of the ground floor, the cellars and underground passages, except for the secret ones, and various ill-defined sections of the grounds, possibly including the boneyards, the engine room and the pointless hut. The arrival of Aminadab dismayed him, he had not been told what on earth to do with this lopsided person, which meant that he would have to seek instructions from Dr. Cack or one of his cronies. He could barely bring himself to speak to them with their supercilious manners, spotless frock coats and not tying expertise. Blodgett's blood boiled. Without bothering to tell Aminadab where he was going, he shoved the trap for flying insect beings back in the kitchen drawer, slammed the door shut behind him, and headed off for Dr. Cack's headquarters. C is for corpse. Oh dear. Hidden behind an iron chest in the pointless hut, bundled up in sacking, there is a dead body. The cause of death is not immediately apparent. In a few weeks' time, an inquest will be told that the esophagus contains three or four small items of ironmongery. The sacking is mostly burlap.
D is for Dr. Cack. Dr. Cack was the foremost potato scientist of his day. He rented a disused leaking building in the grounds of the house, together with a number of surrounding huts in which he and his team of top-flight tuberologists lived and worked. Most of their unbearably exciting scientific equipment was located in the leaking building, through the door of which Blodgett now crashed, breathing heavily through his purple nose. Cack, he shouted, pronouncing the good doctor's name as if he were a chocolate Swiss roll. You know, you know this is a live show, and every now and then I make little errors. Now, how can I say cack and then say it was pronounced differently? I'm going to start that paragraph again. Bear with me. So here we have Blodgett crashing through the door. Cake! he shouted, pronouncing the good doctor's name as if he were a chocolate Swiss roll or a Battenberg. Towards the back of the leaking building stood an enormous table on which were stacked flasks, test tubes, scientific hammers, awls, retorts, dye buckets, cruet sets, trunnions, shards of propolite, alembics, jars, lenses and a burnt quintain. From behind this agglomeration of rubbish, Ruhugu's head appeared, then the rest of his body. He peered at Blodgett with distaste. "'Where's cake?' yelled Blodgett, repeating his mispronunciation. Ruhugu was one of Dr Cack's assistants, perhaps the most fanatical. "'It's cack,' he said, "'to rhyme with snack.' Blodgett trembled with rage. I'll give you snack, he rasped, although what he meant by this was not entirely clear, even to him. Cack, snack, it's all the same to me, he continued. I don't care if he's called Pack, Rack or Glack, he's still a git. He paused long enough for Ruhugu to interrupt. The doctor is not here at the moment. Why are you flailing your arms around in such an alarming fashion? Momentarily disconcerted, Blodgett manoeuvred his hands into his filthy pockets. Thank you, said Ruhugu. Now, as I explained, Dr Cack is away. I have important potato matters to attend to, so I'd be very grateful if you would turn on your heel and be gone. Blodgett's temper was getting hotter. Oh, how he would like to immerse Ruhugu in a vat of custard, bind him with manacles, belabour him about the temples, and abandon him in a ditch. Not necessarily in that order. But of course, Blodgett was a terrible coward, and would only attack defenceless tinies, small, frail animals, and inanimate objects, and only then if he was sure no vengeance would be exacted by some gigantic protector. He spat on the floor, whirled around, and clomped out of the leaking building, cracking his head on the lintel as he did so. E is for Uyghur. In the scullery, Aminadab sat slumped at the table. His elbows rested on a grimy placemat, one of a set depicting scenes of Thuringian history. Blodgett had stacked most of the set on the dresser, leaving two on the table. Aminadab's mat showed the execution of Conrad Schmidt, flagellant king of Thuringia who predicted, inaccurately as it turned out, that the last judgment would occur in 1369. 
In colours that were no longer vivid, Schmid's gruesome face leered out of the flames which were about to engulf him. The six other heretics, who were burned alongside him at Nordhausen in 1368, were curiously absent. Aminadab, who had poured his cold tea down the sink, was about to fall asleep when Uyghur entered the room. She was wrapped in a blotchy shawl, so huge that it trailed along the floor behind her. Her corduroy boots had been strengthened with scraps of inexpertly sewn hide from an unidentified quadruped. As she removed her hat, she shuddered, her sightless eyes directed at the ceiling. "'You must come with me,' she said. Aminadab looked up. "'Shall I bring my luggage?' he asked. "'It might well be for the best,' replied Uyghur in a mysterious tone." Aminadab loaded himself with his three suitcases, haversack, two satchels, purses, vanity bag, cloth hammock, bandbox, badger tin, caddies and punnets, gunny sack, reticule, vasculum and duffel bag. Tottering under the weight, he made to follow Uyghur, but was immediately halted in his tracks when the scullery door banged shut behind her. She did not respond to his cries for help, so he was forced to drop the vanity bag, bandbox, reticule and one of the punnets, wedge the door open with a handy utensil, pick up the items he had let fall, noting that the bandbox was irreparably dented, and hurry after her. So bulky was the haversack, however, that Aminadab was unable to negotiate the doorway without a struggle, and by the time he was free, Uyghur had vanished around the corner of a, sul a sulphurous corridor. By the time he reached the spot, she was nowhere to be seen. Thinking he could hear her shawl trailing across the floorboard somewhere in the distance, he followed on through dingy, unlit corridors, up and down rotten staircases, through rooms empty of furniture or life, past gigantic indoor fountains, conservatories filled with stinking, poisonous, spiky foliage, lumber rooms, bookcases stacked with editions of the novels of Ayn Rand, cavernous halls, storerooms full of half-dismantled tricycles, larders crammed with tins of soup, chambers, parlours and cubicles, ventilation shafts, dust holes and laundry rooms. Hours passed before he admitted to himself that he was lost. F is for food. In dietary matters, Blodgett deferred to the cook, Mrs. Purgative. She was a woman of regular habits and iron will. Every day, she prepared four cauldrons of boiling soup for consumption at dawn, mid-morning, mid-afternoon and dusk. Each soup was prepared from a different recipe, though Mrs. Purgative preferred the antique spelling receipt. The first soup was a thin, clear broth, 
flavoured with kidneys, minnows and saffron. The second soup was thick and lumpy, more like a stew or what the Bible calls a pottage. Its main ingredients were curds, feverfew, whelks, gin, blood oranges and a sort of puddingy sponge of unknown provenance. The third soup consisted mostly of duck pond water into which Mrs Purgative hurled delphiniums, muffins, pike and herring, lights, parsley, cocoa and marsaharina, eggs, toffee apples and cake crumbs. Her greatest achievement, though, was the fourth soup. The recipe had taken her years to bring to perfection. The base was a thick paste of mugwort, the pulp of runner beans, finely ground crocuses and mustard. This was diluted with boiling duck pond water and left to stand for a week, uncovered out in a field. Brought back to the kitchen, the topmost layer of scurf and froth would be drawn off and used as a filling for small pancakes with an oaty flavour. The pancakes would be tossed into the soup together with mayonnaise, cream crackers, bloaters, pemmican, tulip roots, agar, an ox head, krill, the crushed bones of a swan, whey, turmeric, marmalade, groist, badger's brains and spinach. Boiled until it had the consistency of mush, the soup would be thinned out with the addition of yet more duck pond water and egg custard sherry, and then garnished with Brazil nuts and semi-chewed celery sticks. Mrs Purgative usually asked Blodgett to do the preparatory chewing. At quarterly intervals through the year, she cooked an ample supply of each of the four soups, she then supervised the canning process, which was carried out in a small factory in the grounds of the house. Once tinned, the soups were stored in larders, from where Blodgett or other Blodgett-like figures would collect daily supplies. As far as can be ascertained, the soup was the only sustenance officially available in the house. Oh, apart from cups of tea, of course. G is for Gabitas. The Blodgett figure on the second and third floors of the house was known as Gabitas, although this was not the name he had been born with. Like Blodgett, he had been in place for as long as anyone could remember. His nose ran. He was clumsy. His disposition was as bleak and unforgiving as Blodgett's. Gabitas was astonishingly tall, almost seven and a half feet, and his eyes were permanently bloodshot. We shall meet with him again. You can count on it. H is for Haruspices. In ancient Rome, the Haruspices were an order of priests who made prophecies by examining the steaming entrails of sacrificially slaughtered animals. Dr. Cack had made a thorough study of their methods and for the last ten years had been engaged in experiments to carry out successful haruspication using mashed potatoes instead of entrails. Ably assisted by Ruhugu and others, Dr. Cack would lay out the field, a triangular cloth weighted down at each corner by a small piece of bakelite. Onto this, a precisely measured amount of mashed potato would be splattered with the agency of an iron spatula.
A second triangular cloth would be placed atop the resulting mess and pressed down evenly. The upper cloth would then be turned over and the pattern created by the mashed potato which had adhered to it would be examined with great care. Ruhugu used his box camera to make a photographic record. Divination completed and notes and annotations penciled into the foolscap ledger, the cloth triangles would be scrubbed clean with a special detergent in readiness for the next experiment. There were arguments, of course. Moop insisted that only certain potato varieties were sufficiently numinous, as she put it. Maris Pipers, Majestics and Aaron Banners met with her approval. Trellis maintained that the waxy texture of the red Craig's Royal potato made it the only suitable variety. Straub said the cloths ought to be hexagonal. The unhinged jubble went so far as to suggest using boiled and mashed celery instead. Ruhugu mediated between the factions, protecting Dr. Kak from turmoil and strife, leaving him free to pour over the foolscap ledger, frowning, rapt, determined to eke from it whatever revelations it harboured. I is for index. Like the novelist Samuel Richardson, Dr. Cack was an enthusiastic indexer of his own work. Even before he arrived at the house, he had been issuing his Bulletin of Potato Science and Related Matters every quarter. The bulk of the contents he wrote himself, allowing the occasional contribution from Ruhugu, Moop, Trellis and the others. Only Jubble had been barred from its pages because Jubble was unhinged. Every five years, Dr. Cack published as a separate volume a cumulative index to the bulletin. His skills lay in thematic rather than purely alphabetic indexing. Indeed, Scridge has remarked that, like Prynne's Histriomastics, 1633, Dr. Cack's indices are often more readable than the texts from which they are eked. Of the most recent edition of the quinquennial collection of instructive sentiments, maxims, descriptions, footnotes, evasions, queries and accusations contained in the Bulletin of Potato Science and Related Matters digested under proper heads, Scrooge reported that he was, quote, driven to hilarity, unquote, by the entry for potato cyst eelworm, an infection which stunts and withers the crop, with horn dying down prematurely and tubers the size of marbles resulting. Of course, Scridge cannot always be trusted, for he is a deceitful toad. There are those who assert that he has never read a single word of Dr. Cack's majestic works, indeed that he has never read a single potato-related text in his entire sorry life. J is for Jubble. 
You were already aware that Drubble was unhinged. This had come to light very early in his days at the house, so long ago that no one, not even Blodgett, could recall precisely what had happened. There were occasional mutterings about a cravat and a thunderstorm, but nothing of substance. When Dr Cack had arrived with his hideously food-splattered entourage, Jubble had ingratiated himself immediately. He helped the tuberologists to move into the leaking building, tirelessly destroying with his bazooka the piles of accumulated waste materials that had been stored there. He hung their hats up to dry after rainfall. He sharpened their pencils. There were other kindnesses. Within weeks, Dr Cack had formally pronounced him as a bona fide assistant potato person. Jubble busied himself researching powdery scab wireworm and sprang. He worked hard, and Dr Cack began to trust him with the more outre aspects of potato science. But as the years passed, Jubble became ever more unhinged. He was often to be found in uproarious carousal with Uyghur, the two of them pouring vast quantities of dandelion and burdock down their throats and singing inhuman songs. His moustache grew outlandish and was forever smeared with lemon curd and other sinister curds. He wore hawthorns in his hair and carried tiny abominable homunculi in the pockets of his Macintosh. Dr Cack had to have words with him on this score, for the potato scientist was not a man to tolerate orthodox raincoats. K is for kleptomania. Morose and insignificant, dyspeptic and cruel, Blodgett was also a kleptomaniac. He would have stolen his own head, given the opportunity. Oh, the things the man brought back from his robberies pins, litmus paper, zinc, gorse, pie crusts. Not even Uyghur knew where Blodgett stashed everything or how he disposed of it all. Uyghur was relentless. She listened out for Blodgett, concealed behind parapets, shrubberies, false ceilings. She pried and spied without success. Then she questioned him directly. She tied him to a chair and shone a tock-h lamp into his eyes, puffing the smoke from her cheroot into his face. He coughed, but was otherwise uncommunicative. Later she tried wheedling and deedling, but that didn't work either. Blodgett remained wholly and uncannily silent. And still he accumulated tuning forks, dishcloths, cortisone and ironmongery, tin baths, cupcake mixture, the heads of oxen and whisks, and still these things vanished, somehow, as if they had never existed in the first place. Like trellis. L is for larders. The tins of soup were stored in a plethora of larders dotted throughout the house. Although the location of each larder seemed random, two adjacent here, another just down the corridor and around the corner, one tiny solitary larder in the west wing, in fact they were distributed according to a system so stupendous and abstruse that only Mrs Purgative understood it. Blodgett claimed to understand it, and no one was confident enough of their own knowledge to challenge him. 
Aminadab, having arrived at the house only hours before, was unaware that there was even a system in the first place. All he knew for certain was that he was slumped, queasy with exhaustion, on the floor of a larder stacked floor to ceiling with soup tins marked number three. He had given up the quest for Uyghur. Half his luggage had been abandoned somewhere back in an ill-lit corridor which stank of porridge, although there was no porridge to be found in it. He still had the other half of his belongings with him and was rummaging frantically in one of his satchels for the bag of gobstoppers he had packed at the start of his journey three weeks ago. As his trembling fingers lit at last upon the crumpled bag, he heard footsteps approaching. Lurching to his feet, he threw open the door of the larder in desperation. Had Uyghur come to rescue him? M is for Moop. Moop's shoes had been shoved into a red plastic basin on the floor underneath her sink. Each tuberologist had their own sink. Dr. Cack, who had two sinks, had insisted upon it. Moop did not use her sink very often. She was more of a field worker, scurrying about the grounds armed with a plethora of ludicrous scientific equipment, trailing wires and mulvets behind her as she darted from potato patch to potato patch, scribbling drivel into her notebook with an exciting new propelling pencil. She was a sly one, was Moop. She wrote in glagolitic script to safeguard her memoranda from prying eyes. Several of her projects had only a tangential relationship to Dr. Cack's researches. Had he but known? N is for night. High above the house, fat stars sparkled in the firmament. Unimaginable life forms howled and howled in the darkness. Colonies of nocturnal insects hovered in the air at human head height, buzzing and twanging. Blodgett patrolled the ground floor, rattling a monstrous collection of keys, slamming doors shut, sounding the toxins, testing the shutters, checking his fly traps. As he passed the room of distressed wooden bitterns, he heard the unmistakable sound of Uyghur and Jubble slurping and belching. They had locked themselves in, of course, and barred the door with one of the dandelion and burdock barrels from which they would drink until they were as gassy as gassy could be. Blodgett loathed them. On the floor above, in one of the larders, Aminadab was embroiled in a fervent debate with Trellis, who had come upon him quite by accident. After some initial hesitation, they had discovered a mutual interest in, oh, something or other, beetles, poisonous golden toads, David Blunkett, the darning of frayed flags. It could have been anything. It hardly matters. It's all so tiresome. You may as well be listening to a P 
penitential tracked by a horse for all the good it will do you. Night has fallen about the house under the twinkling stars. That will do. And that will indeed do for this week. That was the first half of the immense Duck Pond pamphlet. The second half, beginning O is for Ogre and ending with Z is for something I'm not going to tell you. Um, same time next week, 4 o'clock on Resonance 104.4 FM. Have a good week. Um, bye bye. <laughs>